As I mentioned earlier, once again, we want to welcome everyone, and great to have you here. I also just want to mention, um, once again, my name's Joe, and I'm going to be speaking this morning. And I just wanted to highlight, it's in your newsletter, and we've been announced in the last couple of weeks, but we have a couple, Dave and Rosie Fellingham, who are good friends of ours from England. And Dave and Rosie first came here 15 years ago this month, uh, which is hard to believe, back in 1997, and have really been uh, instrumental in the life of our church. And so Dave and Rosie are coming again in the uh, middle of October for 12 days. They're here from the 18th to the 30th. And uh, Dave and Rosie involved in uh, church life in England. And they're, well, Dave's in his late, oh, wow, late 60s uh, now. And so we're going to, uh, we've asked them to come. And they are really uh, gifted in many different areas of church life. And so on Saturday the 20th, we're going to have a training that's open to the whole church. And they're going to talk a lot about uh, things to do with, um, our Christian life and being set free from things and dealing with uh, demonic things and deliverance and a lot of you know confusion and stuff like that in our world, but we face those things in church life and in everyday life. And so Dave's one of probably one of the best teachers of that on planet Earth, and so he's going to be doing a day of training. So please mark that. And then on the Friday night, the 26th, we're going to have a special evening meeting. These are going to be at our held at our building. And on the Saturday morning, the 27th, and Dave's going to be speaking into worship and spiritual gifts and things about the Holy Spirit. And he'll be here on a couple of Sundays, and Rosie will be here as well, um, meeting with people during the week. So please, can you mark that in your calendars and what you can get to? I highly recommend for you to be able to do that. All right? Okay, Matthew chapter 2. And the last couple of weeks, we've been starting a Matthew and all of really about this explosion of activity as we read the first couple of chapters of Matthew. And sometimes we don't read these chapters except for at Christmas, which Christmas is coming, folks, less than uh, three months, just to make you aware of that. And it's interesting to read these passages outside of uh, sort of December 1st to December 25th. And we're going to be taking a look at this. But this whole idea of Matthew really declaring that Jesus has come and that Jesus is king and the king has come. And if you've missed any of our messages, I invite you on our website to go and to listen to the last couple. Brent started out and did an excellent job of just setting the whole picture from Matthew chapter 1. And then we're looking last week at the end of chapter 1, all about Jesus' birth and how God is with us. And this incredible story from beginning to end about God's presence with his people and how Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And this morning as we read chapter 2, it's an interesting one on so many different ways, but it's really a study in contrast to how people responded to the king coming and being born here on planet Earth. That Jesus, Son of God, coming and making his way in the form of human man, how people responded to that. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at some contrasts from this chapter and also take a look at how does that apply to our lives today and how do we respond to Jesus today. So let's read our scripture And we're going to read through all of chapter 2, so you can read along with me. And it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he's quoting from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, <coughs> excuse me, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So from the book of Hosea. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what it was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, so for many of us, a very familiar passage. And as I said last week, sometimes we can skip over it because sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And we can read it and, uh, again, sort of be nostalgic about it, but miss an incredible amount from this passage. And first thing I want to take a look at uh, in this sort of study of contrast is this. It's really, at the beginning, a whole tale of two kings. And the first one we want to take a look at is King Herod himself, and otherwise known as Herod the Great. And there are many interesting contrasts between King Herod and King Jesus. First one is this, that Herod was appointed. So in 40 BC, ironically, when he was 33 years old, so if that rings a bell when you relate it to what happened to Jesus at 33, when he was 33, he became ruler of that whole area of Judea and Galilee, everything, and Herod was a very wicked and cruel man. And just to give you some examples of how he was really jealous for power, and uh, he was really paranoid, and the longer he lived, the more paranoid he got. And he became so paranoid and different things that he murdered his wife and his sons and basically uh, other relatives and sort of anyone that threatened power in his day and in his time. So he was very, very cruel and oppressive, all those different things. But he was, also, he was also like a master builder, and he rebuilt the temple, and he's quite famous. That's where he got the title Herod the Great for many of the different projects he did with fortresses and temples and all these different things. So you have this whole sort of contrast right from the beginning of Herod, who was in power but appointed by Rome, 
in that power. And you can see, knowing his background, how Herod was pretty troubled when these guys show up and say, where's this new king who's been born? And you can see how he went into his deceitful ways to try to find out what was going on. Now you just take that and you contrast that with Jesus. Because the wise men came, and it's interesting, they gave a title to Jesus right away, King of the Jews. He was born a king. And Brent went through that, that whole line. And folks, it's incredible. Again, if you do some research, it's amazing to see how Jesus even being born in Bethlehem is such an incredible thing. So if you just go a little bit, and this just proves how Jesus was born in that royal line. Okay? If you all go all the way back to Genesis 35, if you remember a guy named Jacob, who quite famous, uh, and we always say the God of Abraham, you know, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob buried Rachel, his wife, in Bethlehem. And if you go through, so right back to Genesis, Bethlehem plays a part. If you read probably one of the most, uh, in a sense, romantic books in the Bible, the book of Ruth, tells this great story about Ruth being an outsider coming with her mother. And a guy named Boaz, who's in that genealogy, was a man who came from Bethlehem. And that's a whole other message about the kinsman redeemer and how he came and took Ruth as his wife and redeemed her, Bethlehem. And of course, if you read David and if you read in 1 Samuel, you'll read about Jesse, his dad, who was from Bethlehem and how David, so that whole line of David came through Bethlehem. So it's quite a contrast of a king being appointed by others and Jesus being born a king. And we also see this. Matthew ties in Jesus being a shepherd. And that whole line of David being known as the shepherd. And that whole aspect of being a king, being a shepherd. And a shepherd who protects. And a shepherd who cares for. And a shepherd who feeds. And a shepherd who leads. And ultimately, a shepherd, as Jesus did, who gave the ultimate sacrifice and laid down his life for his sheep. And you contrast that with Herod killing everyone around him to try to maintain power. Jesus came, as John pointed out in worship, as the great substitute. Okay? He laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life to deal with the whole issue of sin and us being removed from God and us being able to be brought back and to be redeemed. All those incredible things, that was Jesus. And we also see in Jesus being a shepherd and laying down his life. If you read in John 15, Jesus says, you know, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. He also says this, I have other sheep that aren't in the fold yet. And this whole aspect of the prophecy given to Abraham, that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, about Jesus being the sacrifice. He wasn't a king just for the Jews. He was a king for all of creation. And this whole aspect of the wise men coming, even foreshadowing the Gentiles coming into the sheepfold of Jesus being the shepherd. We see this. Herod was really wealthy. Okay? He was rich. Jesus came poor. Another thing we see with Jesus is this. Okay? He was an outcast. He had to flee to Egypt. He was a refugee. Okay? So you've got to take note, folks, of all these different things. Okay? Jesus was poor. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus was an outcast. All these different things. Another thing Jesus had to deal with was this. Okay? If we look at Jesus' life, this last one, he was despised. Of all the places Jesus ended up to grow up from and that he was known with, he ended up being known as a Nazarene. <laughs> and if you read in John chapter 1, 
Okay, folks of his day said, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? And they're like, surely this isn't the Messiah, because if he's from Nazareth, that, it's not him. That disqualifies him right away. Okay? He was despised. He was hated because he was made fun of, and he was scorned because he came from Nazareth. And if you remember in the book of Acts, it, they, they jeered the first Christians because they said they're a bunch of, under this Nazarene, following this Nazarene. Folks, that was like derogatory to be made fun of. And so that title... Jesus the Nazarene, that was, we don't get it today, but in his day, okay, if you just think of something scornful today and embarrassing, that's, that was the title Jesus had. So King Herod, Herod the Great, Jesus the Nazarene. We have to understand the contrast here because there's a whole different thing that's being flipped about the kingdom of God and what Jesus is ushering in as his kingdom and what the world sees as power and of kingdom. Okay, and so you've got to take note of this. And we talk about this today as well. Hey, D.A. Carson, in his book about uh, Matthew and his commentary, says this. Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is telling us, did not introduce his kingdom with outward show or present himself with the pomp of an earthly monarch. In accord with prophecy, he came as the despised servant of the Lord. That kind of fits into what Gary shared this morning, doesn't it? About being broken and God... He didn't fit what we thought a king should be. And if you look all throughout history, we've got to ask ourselves this question. How do we view leadership and power? So you can go through history, and there are many people who have been like Herod all the way through, and I would say that we're dealing with that in history right in our times today. Okay, We look at different things going on in Syria and different things. There's a lot of uh, emphasis on power being military and might and crushing and oppressive. Jesus came to establish a whole different kingdom. So it's just something for us to get right away that sometimes we might not see even from this Christmas passage of the contrast between King Herod right from the beginning and Jesus bringing in a whole new kingdom, an upside-down kingdom as we call it. That's one of love and of service and of sacrifice and of giving away instead of trying to pull everything in to be dictatorial in it. So we see this whole aspect of contrast. We also see this contrast as well. There's really a tale of two responses to Jesus. Okay? One, we see some people came and they worshipped him and they praised him. Others didn't want to have anything to do with him. So let's just take a look at that one for a minute. First we have the chief priests and the scribes. And this, I find this absolutely fascinating. Okay, These guys show up and they say to Herod, where's the king? And Herod freaks out, and he pulls together all the smart people and scholars of the day, and he's like, do you guys know where the ki- this king's supposed to be born? And they knew the answer right away. <laughs> They're like, it's easy, Micah 5.2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And you're going like, well, why? John Stott, his commentary is hilarious. He says, and they didn't even lift a sandal to go and try to find him. And it's amazing. Okay, and this one oof, hits me as far as being a pastor and everything. Okay, it just shows again, you can have all the head knowledge, you can know all kinds of things, you can give the answer to all kinds of things, but it didn't seem to relate in anything to obedience and worship to Jesus. That's scary for sort of religious folk. We can give the answer sometimes, but yet it doesn't move us to action or obedience. Now you compare that to the wise men. We don't even know who these guys really are. Okay, can you imagine their 
faith. And they're seeking. Okay, Here they are. They don't even know the God of Israel. They are into astrology and everything, trying to figure stars out. And somehow they knew about the star, and somehow they knew something about the Old Testament. And they left everything, and they traveled a long way. And not only that, they brought gifts with them, and they were seeking for this king. And of course, they went to the capital. They went to Jerusalem to find out, where's the king? Shouldn't king be in the capital city? And they were outsiders. They were Gentile. They were outside of all those promises for all the nation of Israel. And yet this, they were seeking truth. They were seeking God. They were seeking something. And God, in his sovereignty, led them and revealed to them. And it's amazing. You can even go through. There's prophecies in the Old Testament even about the star being given to lead them to Jesus. Folks, again, it's a real wake-up call sort of for us to ask these different questions, okay? For those of us who might consider ourselves Christian or even religious, all that, the question is, we can know all the right answers, but is it really affecting our heart? Is it leading us to seek and to drop everything and to be passionate and to be following Jesus and to be seeking Jesus and to be obedient to Jesus? Are we coming and we're bringing gifts? I mean, they brought, it says it laid their treasures before Jesus, even as a little child, because they recognized this is the king, and they worshipped him. We can know all the right answers. We can go through the motions. We can do everything that looks like we're obeying God, but yet our heart's not in it. And sometimes we can judge others who maybe don't fit our mold of what it is to be following Jesus. So they might, what we consider outsiders, but God is drawing them to come and to know Jesus. And they might not fit our mold, but yet they're seeking truth. They're seeking after God. They're coming. They're willing to worship. They're willing to give their heart. They're willing to lay their treasures down before Jesus. So there's a contrast, isn't there? There's a contrast in our minds about what we're looking for when we talk about Jesus being king. There's a contrast in our reactions to how we can respond to Jesus. And even here in chapter 2, Early on in Matthew, it foreshadows how there's going to be this divide all the way through Matthew and all the way 2,000 years later, this division over how we respond to Jesus Christ. And there's going to be some, as we go along in Matthew, who are going to respond. Most of the time, it's those who are sort of the outsiders who respond to Jesus. And they come and they follow him. And many who are of the religious persuasion, actually not only do they not follow Jesus, they actually hate him. And the more he does and says the more they are divided against them. And you have to understand, again, when Matthew is writing okay, this gospel, okay, at his stage of life in the early church, the Gentiles were pouring in to the church, and fewer and fewer Jews were following Jesus. And Matthew's stating, okay, there are prophetic words all throughout the Old Testament. You can read them all through Isaiah about how something's going to arise from Israel. A person's going to arise and it's going to gather the Gentiles and the nation. It's going to be like, you can read it in Isaiah chapter 60, about this light that shines and it's going to draw kings from all over the earth. And Matthew's saying, that is being fulfilled in Jesus' coming. That Jesus is king for everyone. And 2,000 years later, we see that true. Jesus is, Paul said it, the gospel's for the Jew and for the Gentile. That's good news. 
for us. But I believe here we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we responding to Jesus being revealed as the king? We see this whole contrast in perspectives as well. And this is amazing when we take a look at this. This great combination of God being faithful to his word. Okay, so we're going to go back, and as we've done over these last couple of weeks, okay, we have to trust and we have to understand okay, the faithfulness of God in this story of Jesus being born. That we have to understand that the promises given to Abraham, the promises given to Moses, the promises given to David, and as we said last week, remember, all these promises are there, and yet the people of God the Babylonians come, they destroy the temple. They're like, how did God, why did God allow that? They're taken into captivity. They come back. The temple's not built. You know, God appears, doesn't speak for a few hundred years. And all the way, saying, God, are you going to come through with your promises? And yet, we see God faithful to his promises. Okay, and Matthew is famous. This gospel is famous for saying this. Thus was fulfilled what was spoken about by the prophets. And how many times have we seen that just in chapter 2? He's referring back. Oh, Micah 5.2. Way back in the Minor Prophets, that was fulfilled. Hosea 11.1. How many people have that one memorized? Do you have that one on your mirror at home? Hosea 11.1. Oh, all kinds of them from Isaiah. Don't forget about Jeremiah. And he's going through all these promises of God are fulfilled. And it shows the amazing faithfulness of God. And folks, the bottom line is this. God keeps his promises. We have to have that perspective, that backdrop. But the amazing thing is this. With that backdrop, God does this. How many times have we heard angels mentioned in chapter 2? And dreams. Okay? God's a supernatural God, and he's faithful to his promises, and sometimes it takes hundreds of years, centuries, for them to come through. But God can also do this. Angel, go speak to Joseph. It's interesting, Joseph, eh? Remember him in the Old Testament? Lots of dreams. And then Joseph in the New Testament? I always like that one because my name's Joseph, so I, just, I always make those connections. Dreams. Angel speaks. Joseph obeys. Oh, Joseph. Angel. Dream. Oh, dream. Joseph obeys. Incredible. That God, supernatural. Okay? Faithful over centuries. You're like, God, how long? And yet, boom, speaks Angels, dreams, visions, supernatural, Holy Spirit. Okay? That's an encouragement to us, folks. And that's the tension we live in, don't we? We have promises from God in the New Testament. We have personal promises. We believe God's spoken to us. And we have to, day in, day out, over years, okay, we have to come back to God and say, God, I'm trusting in you. I believe your word's going to be fulfilled. I don't see it yet, but I'm going to keep trusting you. And sometimes we can go to one extreme. We can do that. And then we're just like, well, it's going to happen someday in the future, and I'm just going to have to get my head down. And we miss being expectant for God going to speak today. The other thing we can do is this. We can like, God, I want the angels. I want dreams. I want visions like supernatural, like take me up into heavenlies and reveal everything to me. But we get impatient, and we don't persevere, and we don't go through that process of God molding and shaping us. And Matthew's encouraging us. It's both. We have to be rooted and ground it in the promises of God. That everything else around us can look like it makes 
you know, God's promises aren't going to be fulfilled. No, God said it. He's the God who keeps his promises. And whether I see it not in my lifetime, down in generations, it's going to be fulfilled. At the same time, God, speak to me today. Would you speak to me today? I'm open for dreams. God, you want to give me a dream? Speak to me. Prophetic words, word of knowledge. God, Holy Spirit, you speak to me. Do you see the great combination of how we need both? We need to be faithful in the promises of God. We have to be open to God speaking to us today. And we have to see this. I think this is our big one in North America. Folks, if we think, again, that following Jesus means we're going to have an easy life, we're going to be really disappointed. Jesus faced opposition before he was even born. Do you know how many times Jesus could have died before he was like two years old? (laughs) Mary, supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit, Old Testament law, okay, committed adultery, you were stoned. You were murdered. That's why Joseph, righteous man, I'm going to divorce her quietly (laughs) just to save her life. Jesus might not even made it out of the womb if God hadn't intervened. There's one. Now you got Herod. He murdered his wife and his kids. No wonder all of Israel was troubled. When Herod got troubled, all of, his, all of Jerusalem got troubled along with them. Can you imagine the scribes and the Pharisees like, these wise guys have no idea what they've just done. These guys just show up, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Can you imagine? And they're just like, boys, you ain't getting home. <laughs> and the deception. And Herod saying, oh, hey, yeah, yeah, king, you go find out, you be diligent, and uh, come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. I mean, what a schemer Herod was. But God supernaturally protected them, gave them, spoke to them, said, go back another way, don't trust them. So there's another one that God intervenes, but opposition to Jesus. Then God has to intervene again because what does Herod do? He knows he's been tricked. He'll just wipe out all the boys in that area too and under. I mean, horrible thing. Third time, so God speaks and Jesus is off to Egypt. Now folks, can you imagine in that day, and in that time, I mean, we think, okay, we have to flee, okay? They just didn't pack up the minivan, okay? They had to go and flee. Can you imagine what it was like to go to Egypt and all the things that could have been lost there, they could have been, you know, murdered there, no one would ever even have known. And yet we see the sovereignty of God coming through. Folks, this is it. Jesus dealt with opposition when he was just a baby. And yet God intervened. Folks, we have to understand that we're going to deal with opposition. Okay? And we're in a spiritual battle. That's why Dave Felly's coming to bring teaching. Okay? We have to understand the spiritual battle that we're in. We try to bring teaching. We're bringing in someone who's really an expert in lots of years of experience to help us understand what do we mean by spiritual warfare? What do we mean we don't just flat battle flesh and blood powers, principalities? What do we mean there's a real devil? What do we mean that there's demons today? Read it in the New Testament. Jesus, man, a lot of what he did was casting out demons. Does that happen today? Where did they all go? Is that around today? We have to learn about those things because we're in a battle. We're in a battle every day. And if you're unaware you're in a battle, you're in big trouble. But we have to see the opposition as something that 
we can trust the sovereignty of God. That we can trust that God's going to come and he's going to fulfill no matter what comes our way. And again, in Matthew's day when he was bringing this forward, they were under extreme opposition. Okay, the church was being persecuted. John Stott says this, Opposition is inevitable, but it will never in the providence of God be allowed to quench God's mission. Let me just say that again. Opposition is inevitable, but it will never in the providence of God be allowed to quench God's mission. What an encouragement that would have been to Matthew's uh, readers. The church, so frail, so exposed, would not be allowed to sink, however threatening the storms and waves that broke over it. Folks, we can be strengthened and encouraged today as well. That even though we face opposition, we can know, much like what Gary already shared, and that sometimes things happen and we're broken. And we're like, God, what are you doing? Where is your protection? How come this is happening to me? We've just got to have a different perspective to say, God, you allowed it. Don't understand it. Okay. But God, I trust you that you're working out your purposes and your plans. And we deal with it every day, don't we? We deal with sickness. We deal with disappointment. We deal with financial things. Okay? We deal with people being cruel to us, okay, right from kindergarten all the way through. And we have to come back to the promises of God and we have to say, God, I'm encouraged because I know your promises and I know that you're a God who keeps your promises. God, I know that you speak today, that you are right here with us. How many times in our worship, as I said, we get realigned, okay, to who God is and that God's at work and that God's able and that God's active today, and God's on the move, and that we are brought into that. How many times do we realize that, hey, we need to hear a prophetic word that, you know what? Man, my life's been shattered! And it isn't what I thought it was supposed to be, but yet God is able to come and to bring pieces together and mold and shape and do something transformational okay, that only He can do. That He gets the glory and you get redemption. We see that in the life of Jesus before he's even in the ministry. Okay? And we have to realize that we have to be on the lookout for God. We have to be encouraged. Okay? One of the best things you can do in your small groups, in your life groups, is encourage one another. God's at work. Okay? It's not just pat answers. It's speaking truth into each other. Okay? God's at work. God's got a purpose. Okay? We live in a war zone, spiritually. Okay? But we've got a great leader. He's working all things together for our good, for his glory. And we might not see the answer yet. We might not see the finished product yet, but we know that we can keep trust in him. Okay. Matthew chapter 2. Today's your typical Christmas message. Okay. Jesus is king, but he looks a whole lot different from our kings here on planet Earth. And we have to say, are we seeking the king? Are we being willing to come to bring our whole lives? Are we just being religious are we being followers of Jesus Christ? Okay, what's, what's our response to realizing who Jesus is? Are we going to be passionate in making an effort to follow him? Or are we just going to let Herod, eh? Wise guys, you go diligently, and when you find him, let me know. Are we going to let others? Yeah, you go on, you be passionate for God, you be a Jesus freak, but you know, when you get everything figured out, let me know and I'll... Or are we going to make the effort 
say, I'm going to seek truth. I'm going to seek Jesus. And folks, are we going to be rooted in the promises of God and yet open to the Holy Spirit that God's going to speak to us? Because folks, you're going to need, we need the promises of God and we need that awareness that God's going to speak if we're going to deal with opposition in our lives because it's going to be there. As John Stott said, it's inevitable. But hallelujah, it's not going to thwart God's plans and his purposes. So this morning, God's got plans and purposes for each one of you. He's got plans and purposes for our local church. He's got plans and purposes for a big C church across Canada, across the world. And this morning, I'm asking myself, are we going to get in right alignment to recognize the king has come, Jesus has come, that he is king? Are we going to line up with him? Are we going to passionately seek him? Not just be religious, not just check, check the boxes. I know the right answers but passionately active in our lives in obedience and worship to him. And it's going to be costly to many of us. Okay? Are we going to hold on to the promises of God? Are we going to be open to God speaking to us today? How are we going to deal with opposition as it comes? Those are the questions we're asking today. And thankfully, we have one. And again, it comes back to Jesus who went through all these things for us went through his life being laid down. But through the power of God at resurrection, God did an incredible work. And he does that today. And he can do that as we come to Jesus in each one of us. So let me lead us in a prayer, and then we'll just see how we want to wrap things up here. Okay, Father in heaven, we thank you today. Lord, I just thank you for your written word. Thank you for your anointing upon Matthew to record this gospel, this declaration of good news. And I thank you this morning that you speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. And I pray now that as we just meditate, Lord, this week on these words, Jesus, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would remind people of who you are as king. I pray that you would put a real desire in us to follow as these wise men, that we just leave everything to come and to follow you and to worship and to obey you. I pray, God, that you would give us such perspective, God, on your promises and how we deal with opposition, that we would know God, that you are sovereign, that we can trust you, and that you, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, by the example of Jesus, that we can have a perspective to know that you're making us more like your son. God, we thank you, Lord, for how you spoke to us in worship, how you are drawing these things together. God, for us to know you and to follow you. God, for your glory and for our good. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.